Hey, it's Ed. I want to thank four brand new podcast supporters, Sam Dunn, Alec Sheaf, Joe Laverini, and Catherine Roos. These four folks signed up to support the podcast via Patreon, and you can go to mountainandprey.com slash support if you want to learn more about that. But thank you, thank you, thank you very, very much. Second thing, I'm recording this in North Carolina on my way to the Land Trust Alliance's annual conference in Raleigh. And so I know a lot of conservation people listen to this. So if anybody is there and wants to meet up, send me an email. It'd be cool to meet in person. Thanks a lot. Hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Becca Aceto. Becca is an Idaho-based conservationist and is currently the Communications and Outreach Coordinator for the Idaho Wildlife Federation. Prior to this position with IWF, she worked in a variety of jobs closely connected to Idaho's rugged landscapes as a naturalist, a Forest Service wilderness ranger, and a Forest Service wildlife technician. Given her professional commitment to the lands and wildlife of the Northern Rockies, you might assume she's a native Westerner, but in fact, she grew up in Ohio and attended the University of Kentucky before heading west after graduation. As the oldest of six siblings, Becca has never been shy about putting herself out there or diving headfirst into new experiences. She's studied various types of conservation in far-flung places like Thailand and Costa Rica, and she moved to the small town of Stanley, Idaho without knowing a soul who lived there. Most recently, in 2017, she took up hunting and has fallen in love with the sport, becoming the Idaho ambassador for the sportswomen's group Artemis. Becca's willingness to step outside her comfort zone, both professionally and personally, can serve as a blueprint for many non-Western young people who want to build a fulfilling life and career for themselves in the Rocky Mountains. Becca and I caught up between a few of her fall hunts and had a wonderful conversation, discussing everything from her early days in Ohio to her current life and work in Idaho. We started by talking about her upbringing, her childhood spent fishing in a small neighborhood creek, her love of horses, and the positive influence of her grandmother, who also happens to be a Buddhist and a vegetarian. We talked about her time working as a ranger and some of the lessons she learned by suffering in the backcountry. We talked a lot about her relatively recent journey becoming a hunter and some of the challenges and opportunities that come with learning to hunt as an adult. We also talk about the important conservation work of the Idaho Wildlife Federation in politics, on-the-ground land stewardship, and public lands advocacy. And as usual, we discuss lots of books and the best advice she's ever received. We cover a lot in a little over an hour, and I jump around with my questions even more than usual. So be sure to check out the episode notes for a full list of everything we discuss. Hope you enjoy. You and I are, are similar in that we both live in the West and we both love the West and our work revolves around land in the West, but neither of us are from the West and we both ended up out here. So Maybe we just start with where you're from and where you grew up. Where, where did you grow up? Um, so I grew up in suburban Ohio. Um, I was born in upstate New York. Okay. But 
uh, and that's where both of my parents are from. But we moved to Ohio when I was pretty young. So that's really all I remember. And uh, I'm the oldest of six. So, yeah, there was always a little bit of commotion going on around the house (laughs) when I was growing up. (laughs) A little bit or a lot of commotion. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, I grew up in Ohio and both my parents put just a whole lot of value on being outside. So even though we were in the suburbs, you know, we had a park down the street with a creek running through it. So that's where I spent the majority of my time growing up. Um, yeah, that's and, cool. That's that's yeah. kind of how I was with uh, the, the neighborhood creek. Just like I think I spent all of middle school in the neighborhood creek. <laughs> yeah, like feet wet, hands muddy. And, you know, what's amazing is looking back, that park couldn't have been more than one or two acres big. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a little blip on the map. And now, you know, I have all this public land in Idaho that I play and live my life on. But you know, that's where a lot of my childhood was shaped in that tiny little park in that little creek with, you know, like trash dotting the banks. And there may have been a bit of an oil sheen on the top of the water. But as a kid, you know, that's just heaven down there. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know that feeling. I mean, the, I drove over the little ditch where I used to play um, in my neighborhood. <laughs> and that was just the source of all adventure when I was a kid. And I looked at it now and it's kind of kind of pitiful. <laughs> looking, I know. As, as an adult, you're like, wow, that's like you have all these grand stories in your head from childhood and you look back as an, or you go back as an adult and it's not what you picture, but at the same time, that doesn't change any of those stories. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so did you, you went to university of Kentucky. Did, did you always know from an early age you wanted to have a, a career based on the outdoors and on land and, and just kind of being out in these wide open spaces? Um, you know, I think I was headed that direction, but it definitely wasn't narrowed down for me until I was in college. So I went to the University of Kentucky um, for a really uh, rational reason. Uh, I wanted to ride horses. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I grew up I grew up riding. I had a horse growing up and, you know, spent the majority of my free time at the barn with him. And um, and Kentucky at Lexington was just a couple hours away from where I grew up, but it was, you know, over the state line. So in my head, it was plenty far enough to feel like I still wasn't at home. Yeah. And, um, so I got there and immediately, you know, I found some horses to ride and I actually started as a pre-vet student. Um, I wanted to go to veterinary school. I really just wanted to work with animals. Mm -hmm. Um, that was always my, my goal. And I quickly learned that I was not the scientist in terms of, uh, you know, chemistry and hardcore biology that I, that I needed to be. Yep. Um, but I really lucked out because Kentucky also had a fantastic, albeit small natural resources program. And, um, so I found that and I switched majors and immediately I just felt like I was where I belonged. Um, the people and the professors and the, and the courses I was taking, um, it all was just an incredible fit. And so I got really lucky in that I found that and it was small. I mean, like I said, there was really there's probably 20 people who were also in that program with me. That's and cool. So, yeah, it was awesome and we got to know each other really well and I still keep in touch with some of those folks and some of the professors as well. Um so just really just a great program. Um so I lucked out in finding that and I and I knew that I still wanted to somehow work with animals. So um I looked into wildlife biology. And decided that's what I wanted to do when I graduated. Um, And in that time, while I was in Kentucky, I um, spent some time in Thailand. I worked at an agricultural research um, station. And I also went down to Costa Rica and did some biodiversity field work and 
um, really just solidified my, my thoughts of what I wanted to do. Where did you go in Costa Rica? Just out of curiosity. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you that cause you lived down there, right? I did. I lived there for a year. Yeah. Up in the Northwest corner, like Guanacaste region near Playa Grande. Okay. It was, the town was called Brazalito, but, um, it's Tamarindo is probably the closest town you've heard of, but I, that place can be kind of like the Myrtle beach of Costa Rica. <laughs> then I don't, that doesn't ring a bell. So I don't think we ever went there. <laughs> um, so we flew into San Jose and then went up towards, um, Tortuguero. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. We're, we're on an Island South of that. And I can't remember the exact name of the Island, but we were working with some biologists that were doing sea turtle research. So, yeah, um, that's where yeah. Gr- Playa Grande was a, um, was a sea turtle sanctuary and they had all these, they had all these rules like setbacks for the houses and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it's like a three mile long beach. And every, you know, you'd see sea turtles out there when I was surfing all the time. It was the really unbelievable thing that I didn't, it really opened my eyes to the marine conservation, I guess, because I just didn't know anything about it. But that's, it's fascinating. So why did you decide, like when you had a, a cool experience like that, and that, you know, possibly could have been an option, and then you decided to head west, what was, what was the thought process or what, what caused you to want to head west over all the other cool options you could have had. Yeah. You know, I loved the Marine aspect of that. Um, and growing up, you know, we spent some time in South Carolina off the coast on an Island called Edisto. Not Myrtle. Not Myrtle. Not Myrtle. (laughs) Uh, my parents liked to take us places that were a little quieter. So Edisto sort of felt like a step back in time. Oh yeah. That's a cool place. Yeah. But, um, you know, I loved it, but it just never really resonated with me in the same way that, just the big open landscapes of the West did. Um, I have family in Alma, Colorado, which is south of Breckenridge. Yeah, I used uh, to drive through there all the time. It's like the highest highest town in the in the country, right? Well, one of yeah, the they live over, they live over ten thousand feet, and I specifically remember every time we'd go and visit, it was incredible. But I'd always get altitude sickness. <laughs> yeah, it's high. Um, yeah, but it's beautiful, and so I I grew up going there and spending time with them, and I knew I wanted to move west. Um, and that was really my only connection. And so I looked at um, jobs in Colorado. As soon as I graduated college, I moved west. But before that, I was sort of figuring out where I wanted to go. And to be honest, I completely glanced over Idaho. Um, it just wasn't on my radar. But I ended up applying to one job there, um, just one in this town called Stanley, which is you know about 100 people. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the job that I was offered, and that's the job that I took. So um that's, you know, I just, I was given an opportunity and I just took it, you know, didn't look back. And so you've been there in Idaho ever since. And from the, 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 the weird thing about this podcast is I do all this research on people. And if I didn't have the podcast, it would just be straight up weird, like stalking stuff. Cause I know all this information about you, <laughs> but, but so, so you worked as a, as a forest ranger for a while, correct? Yeah. So, um, my first job, actually, I was a naturalist. So when I was going to school in Kentucky, um, my job just to make some money while I was in school, um, I worked for the local parks and rec in Lexington Mm -hmm. and I helped run, um, a nature center and, you know, I took school groups out and, um, basically taught environmental education. So when I moved to Idaho, I did the same thing in Stanley, Um, but I just quickly realized that I wanted more like on the landscape. I wanted more hands-on field work, um, like out, you know, out on these lands that I was teaching people about. Yeah. So that first job as a naturalist, I did that for a season. Um, and then I started looking into jobs with the forest service and I really lucked out, um, 
So I got a job as a wilderness ranger in the Frank church. So that was my really, yeah. So that was my first, my first, I guess, real field job. And, um, it was incredible. It was, I mean, everybody talks about those life changing experiences and I've had plenty. That wasn't the only one, but that was certainly a, a big cornerstone of my life. Was What about it? Like what specifically was, was so, uh, impactful? Um, well, so to start, I didn't actually live in town and go work in the wilderness and then come back out to town on my days off. I actually, um, lived at a remote guard station called Big Creek. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I was two and a half hours down a gravel road from the nearest town. Wow. Uh, Yeah. So extremely remote. And to be honest, when I, when I accepted the job, I didn't even really know what I was getting myself into. I'd never been out there before. Um, I just knew it sounded amazing. And sort of like that first job that I took that actually brought me to Idaho, I sort of just jumped at the opportunity and didn't look back. Um, which can sometimes be, uh, you know, you don't know what you're getting yourself into, but it's always worked out for me thus far in life. Yeah. And even if it doesn't, like when you're a few years away from it, it's a good experience. I mean, that's, I I do the same thing. I don't, I probably could think about things, think things out a little better, but I mean, you know, you just got to go, got to do stuff, which, (laughs) but see that, I said this, that, that reminds me and I'll back up a little bit. It took me until I was probably your age. How old are you right now? If you don't mind me asking. I'm 28. So I was 27 when I moved to Jackson Hole and it finally to, to sell ranches. And it took me that long to like build up the guts and to break the status quo of all my friends that were in finance or commercial real estate or whatever they're doing, wearing a suit, taking myself very seriously. And then finally, <laughs> uh, at age 27, I was like, all right, I'm 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 moving out west. I didn't really think it out, um, but I got a, I got a cool job and everything. But what what do you think like what do you credit with giving you the guts to strike out on your own go somewhere you've never been at age what 22 23 where is that your parents is it your friends is it books you read where does that come from i'm jealous of it <laughs> um you know i've always had a little bit of tenacity that just made me jump at these things and um yeah you know my parents definitely growing up my dad travels a lot for his job. Um, you know, he's been all over the world and really instilled that, um, that just desire to see different places and meet different people and just get to know the world. Cause there's so much out there that's, um, that just adds so much value to your life. The mm-hmm. more you, the more you experience and the more people you meet. So, you know, I knew that graduating college, I wouldn't stay where I was just for that simple fact. Um, and, you know, I, I can't choose where I was born so or, or grow up, but I always felt like I belonged out West. So I knew as soon as I had the opportunity, I would take it. Um, but yeah, you know, growing up the oldest, I, I sort of paved the way for the rest of the, the kids beneath me. And my parents really never told me I couldn't do anything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they gave me a lot of confidence in my ability to navigate my own life. And um, that definitely helped as I was sort of setting out on my own for the first time. And I had, you know, whatever option presented itself to me, I could take. And so they definitely instilled that in me. And, you know, I have friends that certainly, you know, have been supportive, but they've also been like, that's a little crazy. I don't think I would do that, but good for you. (laughs) 
Yeah, that was what I got when I was when I just announced I was leaving, uh, moving out west. I was you know twenty seven, and people were like, "What are you going to find yourself <laughs> at age twenty <laughs> seven? I mean, it. I don't know. It's it's tough breaking the status quo. And one of your Instagram posts, which are so well written, by the way, um, you don't need me to tell you that. But there there's so <laughs> much substance in there. Um, but you mentioned your Buddhist vegan grandmother. Is that correct? Yeah, so my grandmother, who I actually just spoke with the other day on the phone, um, she's um, vegetarian, not okay. vegan. But, okay, got it. Does yeah. she is she an influence on you? I mean, because that somebody of a grandmother's age being a vegetarian and a Buddhist, I mean, that's not you don't hear about that every day in the United States. So, how is uh, did, did she has she been a big influence on you? Yes, my grandmother is an incredible woman. She. Um, so my grandparents got divorced when my dad was young and she raised three boys and, um, having three brothers, uh, I know that can't be easy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) They're wild animals. I know. Don't, uh, don't send this to child services, but I think my dad has stories when he was uh, growing up of like spending some time in dog cages. Cause she's like, (laughs) I just can't handle you right now. I I need some peace and quiet. Um, but you know, when my dad was a kid, they lived in Bangladesh for a little while. So she was raising, you know, three young boys over there and then came back and she still lives in upstate New York, but, um, she's just a, she's just a tough woman and, but also like so compassionate and kind. And she was a librarian for a long time. So she's just always instilled this, this desire to keep learning throughout your whole life. Mm Um, and she, yeah, so she's Buddhist and there's a peace pagoda in upstate New York that she spends a lot of time at. And, um, she has some friends from there who would come visit her. So she recently moved from a small cabin, um, on a couple acres to a city, which is a new adventure for her. Um, but she has some friends that come visit her and, um, I don't, you know, I don't want to get this wrong, but they'll, um, I think some sort of instrument. I think it's a drum and I don't know, I think they have the special name for it, but they came to this apartment complex where she lives and brought their drums. And every time they come and leave, they do this little ceremonial um, playing of the drums. And my grandma said the other people that live there were just in shock. Like who is this old woman who just moved here? Who's bringing monks to this apartment building? Like she just, (laughs) She brings adventure wherever she goes. So that's certainly been a big influence in my life. That is really, really cool. That's how, you know, whenever I'm an old man and I have grandchildren, I want to have that kind of impact. I want them to think about me in the way you described your, your grandmother. I mean, that's just, it's so cool because it's, it's so out of the ordinary for somebody of that generation. And I really do think that kind of, that stuff is in your DNA, you know, the ability to, to do things outside the, the box. Cause you know, a lot of times when you meet interesting people, they come from a long line of interesting people. So that's, that's really cool. Um, one more, one more question kind of jumping around, but about the time, your time as a working as a forest ranger. So were you like in close quarters with teammates or were you solo or was it kind of a combo of both? How did, how did that work? Um, and, and if you were with people, like, can you talk about some of the lessons you learned just by being part of a team like that? Yeah. So, um, I lived at this guard station called Big Creek and it was myself, um, my coworker who was also a wilderness ranger. Her name was Jen. And then her boyfriend, Robin, he was the packer. So it was just three of us out there and we had 18 head of stock. So, um, we all took turns taking care of those as well. And, um, my, 
so that that guard station itself wasn't actually in the wilderness. It's just where we lived. And we would go from there into the Frank um, and, you know, spend anywhere from one to 10 days um, out there working. And so some of those trips, it was Jen and I, other trips, it was um, we'd have interns come in from nonprofits um, from both Idaho and Montana that would go out there with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other times it was alone. So it was really a mixture of all three and we were fairly flexible in creating our own schedule. So that was pretty great as well. Um, we could, you know, sort of take things as they came. Um, but yeah, I was out there with other people and, um, oh my gosh, there's plenty of lessons to be had. Um, places like that, they put you in uncomfortable situations, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think more people need to, need to feel discomfort on a fairly regular basis. It's such a great thing that makes you appreciate so many other aspects of your life. Um, but you know, we were, um, doing this route from the station. Um, we were doing this big loop and then we were getting picked up on sort of the other side of the wilderness. And, um, on day, I think two of seven, I lost my gloves. And so, you know, you're using a Pulaski, you're picking up rocks, you're doing all this stuff. So, um, I'd lost my gloves and then we were at this peak that was at about 7,000 feet and we had to drop down to this river that was, um, you know, below 2000 feet. So dropping a lot of elevation and there was just one water source on that, on that drop of elevation. And we ended up camping there for a couple of days and this windstorm came through and it was an area that had burned a couple of years ago. So the whole evening we were just hearing, uh, trees falling and, we were in this tent and my coworker Jen and I were sharing tent and we were just sitting there talking to each other, trying to talk, um, through the night. So we just didn't focus on all the trees falling around us. Cause there's really nowhere else we could have gone. And, yeah. um, finally sort of the whim wind calmed down and, uh, things got a lot easier for both of us, but it's just a really harrowing situation and you just work yourself through it. You can't panic because there's nothing you can do about it. Um, it's, it's, it's your current location and situation and it's, it's what you've got to work with. So you just have to get through it. And we did, but, um, you know, there's certainly situations that didn't end as well as ours did, but just learning how to get through things like that with other people is really valuable. Yeah, it is. And I don't know that there's a way to get those lessons without the scary stuff or the, the hard stuff. I mean, it, if if you could read a book and learn that lesson, that'd be great. But at least in my experience, the only way to learn it is to get out there and just get the shit scared out of you. And it's, I mean, that sounds kind of macho or tough guy kind of stuff, but <laughs> I, I really, I mean, I don't, I don't know that there's any other way to really learn those lessons. Like I lost my gloves one time before, like in the middle of a trip and I'll never lose my gloves again. Like that, <laughs> that will net of all the weird things that could happen to me, losing gloves will not be one of them. Um, because it's I did not that. such a small thing, but it's really not when you're working with your hands and you have no gloves and you know, your hands and your feet are so important and taking care of those, um, when you're out sort of, uh, in these really backcountry places is, is a pretty big deal. But yeah, you know, getting, like you said, getting the shit kicked out of you and, and feeling scared, like truly, truly scared how many people experience that anymore and like know what that is. And I think that's such a great thing to know. It is. And I think we're built as a species. I mean, we're built for it and we can handle it because you think about how hard we had it just, you know, 15,000 years ago coming across the the Bering Strait. 
I mean, we're built to be tough. And when, I feel like when we're not being tough or we're not being stressing ourselves or pushing ourselves physically, it's like we're not doing what we're built to do. And I think you lose something there. And again, I'm not trying to sound like a tough guy, but it's I really think uh, you're not using the the machine that is the human being uh, to its fullest potential unless you're really kind of pushing yourself beyond your limits. I mean, does that, does that sound crazy? No, no. From, from one person that uh, enjoys getting the shit kicked out of them to another, I think that's, <laughs> I don't think that's crazy at all. <laughs> good. Well, at least maybe we are crazy, but we're on the same page. So that's good. Um, <laughs> yeah. So wait, when, so when did the Idaho Wildlife Federation come into, come into play? Oh goodness. So in my life, just last year, um, it's been around since the thirties, the 1930s. Yep. But, um, since, uh, so I was a wilderness ranger just in 2015 and then, um, a field biologist job opened up on the Sawtooth National Forest, sort of where I considered like, quote unquote, my home yes. in Idaho. So, um, I jumped at that opportunity and moved back to Stanley and spent the next three years there. Okay. So there was a three year period between, um, being in the Frank church and, starting with the wildlife federation, um, where I was in Stanley working as a field biologist and, um, doing sort of different types of work, um, on a different national forest. Um, but yeah, last July is when I started with the wildlife federation. So oh, I've cool. been with them since then. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit just about the organization, what you guys do, and then about your role in the organization? Yeah. So we work on statewide wildlife and habitat conservation issues across the state. Um, and we also work on a lot of hunting, angling, anything that pertains to, you know, the hunting, angling community within Idaho as well. Um, so, yeah, it's a nonprofit that's been around since the 1930s. It was sort of, you know, it was in that time when there was a lot of decline in wildlife across the western U.S. just due to exploitation. Uh -huh. And so some people in Idaho saw that and they started this group. Um, and a year after is when the Idaho's, Idaho's Fishing Game Commission um, came into existence, which sort of is the governing arm of the state wildlife agency. Um, so it's got a pretty rich history since then. Um, and it's sort of going through changes. My boss came on as the executive director in 2016. Okay. And since then the organization is really, um, like it's really hit the ground running. And there's a lot going on in Idaho. You know, we stay busy, which is both good and bad. It means there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of work to be done in the state. So we work on things, you know, we work on on the ground projects with agencies and other conservation partners. Um, I've been doing some cool work. Have you heard of Beaver Dam Analogs? I don't think I have. No. So they're this thing that's, you know, it's gaining traction in Idaho. So people will go in. And I've mostly been doing them on private land. So we're working with private landowners um, to get these done. But you're putting in these structures in creeks and uh -huh. they mimic beaver dam and they sort of slow the water down and encourage beavers to come back and recolonize an area. And it, it just helps increase water storage in these more arid areas in um, mostly southwest Idaho right now. Yep. But they've been really impactful um, in the areas that they've been put in. And so we're continuing to work on stuff like that. Um, so we've got sort of an on the ground, uh, program that we do. Um, 
in the spring and winter. So between like January and April, um, we work a lot in the state house. So during the legislative session in Idaho, we were there almost every day just to make sure that there's a voice there for wildlife and habitat and, you know, the hunting and fishing community as well. That's um, something I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about because, you know, you always hear about the importance of engaging with your representatives, whether on a national level or state. And, you know, I've, I've been involved in land conservation one way or the other for a really long time now. And but it wasn't until this last April that I went, actually went to D.C. and did some of the lobbying or advocacy work and meeting with these people. And I just, you know, maybe it may shows my ignorance, but I just figured it was kind of a charade. And at the end of the day, the, the, the group with the most money won. But when I went up there and started talking to all these representatives or and um, and senators, I walked away very, very optimistic about things and that you can have a voice and you can influence these people, especially on bipartisan issues like conservation. And I felt like kind of a dumbass because I've been writing it off as a waste of time when, in fact, it is very, very, very important. And so now I'm like gung ho about about the legislative part of things. So. Can you just maybe talk a little bit more detail about what what you what y'all do and like maybe an example of some issues y'all are working on? Yeah, first of all, that's awesome. I love to hear that because you know before I started this job, I thought the exact same thing. Yeah, I thought it was sort of just of a you're doing it just for the sake of doing it, not mm-hmm. for an actual outcome. Yes. Um, but if you think about, it, we elect these people to represent us you know, and we can't possibly expect them to know every single thing about every single issue. It's just not possible for a human being. So that's where we come in, right? As their constituents, we help educate them and it's up to them to, you know, form their own opinion, but we can certainly give them the facts and help them get, you know, somewhere with those facts. You know, generally out West right now, there's a lot of talk about the threats to public lands and the threats of the state's trying to buy public lands or, or of the federal government disposing of lands to the states. And I've been in, I'm on your email list, which is awesome, by the way. And one of the most recent emails I got, you guys were talking about the the new head of the BLM and kind of the who he is and his background and as it relates to threats to public lands overall. Can you talk a little bit about that issue and kind of what y'all, what y'all think about that? Yeah. So, um, William Pendley is the new, um, he's not actually formally the head of the BLM. So he's, um, I, I forget what it's like, he's acting as the head or okay. acting as the director. So he hasn't formally been sworn in. Um, and his, uh, his seat just gets, keeps getting extended. So now he's been extended until January of 2020 in the position that he's in. Um, and, you know, the issue that a lot of um, folks that, you know, appreciate public lands have is that for most of his career, he's been pretty vocal about his his disdain for public lands and his desire to see public lands either transferred to the state or sold to private buyers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's published op-eds and papers. So there's, I mean, there's plenty of stuff out there that just really black and white shows what his stance is. Um which, you know, maybe that means he understands the system because he's done a lot of research, but that doesn't mean he's on the right side of the issue. So a lot of groups are pretty, pretty upset to see him in such an important position, you know, in Idaho and um, where you live in Colorado and a lot of these Western states, there's a lot of BLM land. You know, these aren't just disposable places that have no use. You know, they are places where hunters and fly fishermen and 
hikers and bird watchers, everybody goes. So they're, they're pretty valued places. Um, yeah, that whole and, public lands debate is, uh, I, I wonder how much people really understand it and understand what's going on there. Because I think if you just talk to somebody, a, a random person, even outdoors, a person who enjoys hiking or whatever, I don't think they fully understand the threat involved in the federal government selling or transferring these properties to states. Do you? Yeah, I think you're right in in your thinking that a lot of people don't maybe fully understand what would happen uh, if that were the if that were the case. Um, so in Idaho, for example, the state is mandated by law to generate the to use their state lands to generate revenue. So that could be for recreation, right? We have state parks. Um, we have areas that are just open to the public for use. Um, or they could be completely closed off to the public. And that's perfectly legal for the state to do. So let's say they have a small parcel and they think its best use would be, um, you know, for development. Then they could they could do that. Or if they think the best use is for public recreation, they could also do that. But we, the public, don't have any control over that. So um, it's also very expensive to manage mm-hmm. public lands. And I think a lot of people forget that it's not just the lands don't just sit there and nothing happens. You know, there are people out there working on these landscapes. And um, I don't you know, I don't know any state that wants to take on the expense of firefighting. That's certainly a incredibly expensive thing that the federal government pays for. And um so I just think there's a lot of holes in that argument where people say, well, it'd be better if it was in state hands because those are, you know, it just brings it down. I think they think it brings it more close to like a local level. At least in Idaho, the state is absolutely not under any obligation to keep lands open for the public to use. Yeah, that was a good, that was a great explanation because it, it took me a while to get my head around that because you're thinking, you have to think three or four moves out of, of where this thing's going to lead, not exactly what is happening right now it's where is this going to be in 20 years from now um well can we talk a little bit about your um relatively new uh obsession with hunting and how you <laughs> i want to i want to hear how did you did you grow up hunting at all or or did you is it pretty brand new for you um i didn't so i grew up fishing okay. um in that creek we talked about earlier yep. the one with the little oil sheen on the top of it yeah um, I grew up fishing and I was always outside, but I never grew up hunting. And I didn't even look at it as part of outdoor recreating, right? Mm-hmm. It was sort of like a them and us. There were hunters and then there were hikers or there were hunters and then there were backpackers. And um, so when I went to college, I um, was given the opportunity to go to this conference called Conservation Leaders for Tomorrow. It was up in Illinois. So I traveled up there for a weekend and I went fully expecting to, you know, learn about land management and learn about wildlife biology. And the entire weekend was about hunting. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because at the time I was like, what in the world did I get myself into? But, um, you know, it was actually really valuable because I took my hunter's ed and I learned all about different firearms and shooting. And we actually got to go out on a hunt. Um, and I, so we hunted pheasants on private land up in Illinois. And it was really fun. And we hunted behind dogs, but to be honest, that happened. And then I went back to college and I didn't really think much of it. Right. I didn't think, Oh my gosh, my life has changed. I'm a hunter now. It was just, it was just a weekend. Yeah. Um, so then I moved out to Idaho and lived in this really small town, you know, more or less a hundred people. And, um, most people there hunted 
that's how they got food for the winter because, you know, this town was an hour away from the nearest grocery store and it was just a very logical thing to do. And still it took me four years, four years of living in Idaho to actually, so I bought my own rifle, um, which that's a whole other story in itself. I bought the completely wrong rifle, but it was a learning experience. <laughs> I bought like one step up from a squirrel gun to use for a deer hunt. So, uh, but you know, you live and you learn, right? That's right. It's uh, like so, it's like the gloves thing. You'll never make that mistake again. Like problem solved. Right. Right. And to be honest, like I'm not a huge gun person. You know, I I have my gun because it helps me hunt. I don't have my gun because I you know have a whole safe full of guns and you know i think there's something beautiful about a lot of these older you know guns that have been used for generations but it's just not really my thing you know i like to go into the woods to be quiet and to just observe not necessarily to you know to go out and fight the government when they come to get you yeah yeah definitely (laughs) i would just run and hide i'd be just useless if it came to fighting yeah but um, (laughs) Um, yeah, I, uh, I bought my first hunting license in 2017. Okay. Um, and I just bought a over the counter general deer tag. And, um, it's funny because I, you know, at the time I was working as a field biologist in Stanley and I was just so confident on the landscape. You know, I knew these creeks and these valleys and these mountains and ridgelines, like the back of my hand, but I didn't know how to hunt. Right. And I didn't, I didn't really have anyone to teach me, to be honest. So I bought this gun. Um, I did have someone take me out and we just shot for a day at some targets. So we sighted in my rifle. And then that was that, you know, they were hunting for themselves and their family. And I was hunting for myself. I mean, that first season was just a spectacular failure in in every (laughs) single sense of the word. And I'm so thankful for that because now I can look back and laugh. But at the time I was like, why am I so bad at this? You know, I'm, I, I know where I am. I know this landscape. I thought I knew wildlife, but I just, I didn't have the patience. I didn't have just that general understanding of like, I guess I didn't have the confidence in my, in my abilities that I thought I did. When you think about that first year, like specifically, what did you do wrong that you would like, that you wouldn't do this year? What what were you doing that year that that you would now you look back at and you're like, man, I was a dumbass for for doing it that way? Well, I think I made a lot of assumptions. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, you know, like I said, I shot my gun and I thought I was ready, but I really wasn't. Um, You know, all the preparation that I I did the following year when I was much more successful, I didn't do any of that that first year because I just assumed that all it took to hunt was just to go out there with a gun and sit and the animals would come to you or you'd go out and find them where they were or, you know, everything would just go right. And I just didn't put in that time. Yep. And so to be honest, I'm glad I didn't have any success that year because I don't think I earned it. I think, um, it was a really great learning experience, but I don't think had I gotten anything, maybe at the time it would have felt good, but I certainly don't think that I would have felt like I earned it. Sure. So, um, so I ended up selling that gun and I got a different one. I did a lot of research um, and it was just a good learning opportunity. You know, I would have never researched guns for any other reason, but I did. I sat down because it was something I needed to learn and I did all that research. Um, 
and figured that out. And then the following year, I just, I also got lucky in that I made some friends that also hunted. Mm -hmm. So I had a community of people that I could talk with, which I think in anything you do, whether it's hunting or fishing or trail running or climbing, having a community makes something a lot more, it just makes it a lot richer. Yes. Yeah. And so I found, you know, my own little community of people who I felt like I related with. And, um, we went out and scouted together and we all, we would shoot together. Um, and so last year, 2018, when the season rolled around, I just, I felt confident and you know it when you feel it, you know, you can say, I feel confident, but there's still doubts in your mind, or you can say it and you know that you're going out there and you've done everything you can to prepare for whatever it is that you're going out to do. And that's how I felt last year. And so it went much better. Um, and I harvested a few animals and, um, have some wonderful stories to tell. And um, what's been really incredible was that no one else in my family hunted um, on either of my parents' side, but now they're all so curious in it. And, you know, my sister wants to come up and hunt and I'm going to go back East for Thanksgiving this year. So I'm going to bring a cooler full of uh, elk and grouse and all sorts of stuff back for, for Thanksgiving. So that's really, really rewarding. That's really cool. Um, and that's like the the super positive side, and I'm not trying to make everything negative. But have you had any um, <laughs> have you had any weird conversations with any of your like maybe biologist friends or conservation friends, the the people that think that m- maybe hunting and conservation or hunting and a, a love of wild places and wild animals are mutually exclusive? Have you has has there been any friction there? You know, to be honest, I wish I could say yes, because maybe it means I would be reaching more people because, you know, maybe then I'd finally find someone who was angry and showed it. But, you know, I've had really honestly nothing but pretty good conversations. That's great. With folks. Um, and I think it's because I I remember so clearly not being a hunter. Right. Uh-huh. Like that's just a couple of years ago in my life. And that was most of my life. And so I come into these conversations with whoever it is trying to be. I, I'm not trying to like get my point across. I'm not trying to tell my story because typically they're the one that has questions and they're the one that's probably a little more uncomfortable. Yep. And so I try to come into these conversations and just listen and let them talk and watch them sort of work through it. And it's, it's almost always just been nothing but positive. That's great to hear. And it's like we were talking about before we started recording. It, it doesn't take much to get people fired up these days. And, um, and so that's, uh, that's very encouraging to hear. And I think the whole idea of, you know, like the local food movement or the, the responsible food movement, I think is very quickly getting its head around hunting as a, as a, the most responsible way to get meat and, um, or, or one of the, the very, very top. And so that's, I'm very glad to hear that. Can you talk a little bit about Artemis and how that, how your role in that, maybe what the organization is and then your role in that? Yeah, so um, Artemis is a fairly new initiative of the National Wildlife Federation, um, and it was founded by a group of women several years ago who wanted some community or something to sort of help women grow as leaders in conservation in whatever facet they're in, be it, you know, working in nonprofit or advocacy or as a wildlife biologist or um, even just as a hunter themselves in their own personal life. And so it's grown from that a couple of years ago into, um, more of a stable, um, organization. And so I came on with Artemis last year, um, as the Idaho ambassador. And so right now it's just me in the state, but Hey, if anyone from Idaho is listening right now and wants to (laughs) jump on board, 
they're more than welcome because it's a big state to do that in. But um, so as an as, as the Idaho ambassador, I do a lot of work just trying to reach out to women across the state to sort of see what they need um, in their own personal and professional lives to help them reach those goals. Um, cool. And it's also an educational, yeah, and it's an educational opportunity. You know, a lot of women who are curious or, or anyone really, um, anyone who's just curious about hunting or fishing or, you know, working in that field, um, has reached out and it's been really great to see people sort of find a community that they feel comfortable in enough to start asking questions and, you know, be vulnerable in to try and grow. That's really cool. And I've, I've been following that organization for a while and, um, like on social media and, website and everything. And it it's just seems like it's, it's filling this niche that needed to be filled for a long time. Cause I mean, I even think about my experience with fishing and hunting and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, my, my dad was not a, a hunter or fisherman. And so I, I kind of had to teach myself and it's, it's harder than, I mean, it's hard to find a, a crew of people to do that, you know, especially if you're starting later in life, you know, if it's not something you're doing when you're eight years old, just uh, kind of the nervousness around it and thinking it's, it's a bigger deal than it is. And I don't know. So I think, um, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a white dude from Eastern North Carolina. So I can't, you know, I, and, and I'm probably more likely than anybody to be able to get into it. And so maybe I, I read an interview that you did and you were talking about the, the need for more diverse voices in conservation and, and maybe in hunting as well. But could you just maybe talk a little bit about that, about, what you've seen maybe in just your, your few years of hunting, but why it's important to you to see a more diverse um, group of, of hunters and conservationists. Yeah. I mean, I have no problem with like you just described yourself, right? Like yeah. the white male being a voice, but no one, no, no community should ever just have one voice as you know, the, the speaker of the group. And what I found is my own experience within hunting has been made a lot more enjoyable um, when I've surrounded myself with a lot of different voices. Because, I mean, what fun is life if you're just with this singular crowd with one singular idea and, you know, a singular way of talking about things or doing things or, you know, sharing experiences. I mean, there's nothing wrong with looking at people who are different than you and, saying, I appreciate that, but it's not where I, where I feel like I fit. Mm -hmm. So then we should be making opportunities for everybody to feel like they fit somehow if they want to. Yeah. I think that's very well said. I think anybody who doesn't want to explore new ideas there. Yeah. I think it just boils down to fear. Um, me being very fearful of, of any new ideas. Cause I'm, I'm with you, the more ideas, the better. And if I can, if somebody can change my mind even better, because that means I was thinking about it incorrectly. Like that's, when I met my wife, she changed my mind on so many things. And I'm so glad she did because I, when I look back on my dumb ass before I, I met her, like <laughs> I, I needed that, that change. Um, so for advice for, say, there's a, a, a young woman who lives in Boise who's 25 years old but has never really done much outdoor outdoor activities um, other than, you know, hiking or mountain biking or whatever, who wants to get into hunting, what would be your advice to her? I mean, I would say just start, start talking to people and asking questions. And I think that relationships are so valuable anymore. And like we were talking about earlier, um, people spend so much time on their phones, right? So mm -hmm. having personal relationships and face-to-face -face conversations with people is, 
is less and less common. Um, but people still put an immense amount of value on it. So the more people you meet and the more, you know, the more people you talk to, you know, just networking within a community that you want to somehow join or learn more about, um, the more people you meet and the more people you talk to, the more opportunities present themselves to you. You know, there are a lot of groups out there that want, want to help and want to help people reach these goals or meet people that can help them reach goals. And, um, Next week on Thursday, I'm going to go out. Um, so I'm a fairly new hunter myself, but, you know, I feel pretty comfortable out in the woods. And so I'm going to take a new, um, a gal who's never hunted before out next Thursday. And, um, you know, she's, um, she's got a couple kids, so she's a younger mom, but just was really interested in hunting. And I think just started talking to people and reaching out to different groups and, um, you know, there's a lot of nonprofits that do this kind of work. Um, so the more people you talk to, the more opportunities present themselves to you. That's great. And I would imagine that taking her out will, you know, be awesome for her, but it'll also make you even better. Cause I found when I have to teach something, I really, you know, it, it makes me better at understanding it. Cause, um, that, that'll be great. That's awesome that you're doing that. Um, so I want to hear about your hunt that you were just on. Cause when we were trying to schedule this, <laughs> I think we were emailing or texting and you were getting ready to head out the next day super early for a hunt. So how did that go? Um, I think I actually emailed you back to reschedule from my sleeping bag uh, the <laughs> night before. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, I was uh, shivering as I was typing that. So sorry if there were typos. Um, so as it usually goes, it was very eventful. So I uh, have this spot that I hunted last year that I saw a lot of animals in and I saw no people or no sign of people. And um, that's just such a special thing anymore. So that's sort of what I flock to is I try to find places where it's just me and and the elk and the deer and the birds and the sagebrush. So um, I found that spot last year. So I went back this year and it was cold. It was really cold, but it had just snowed. So there were probably six to eight inches of fresh snow on the ground. And it was cold enough where it was that really light, um, just powdery. Yeah. I think if like the, the ski community calls it blower pow, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It was that. I had no skis with me and, um, it was just incredible. And it took me, so I was up there before first light and, wasn't finding tracks, wasn't finding tracks. So I just kept climbing and I actually went further than I've been in that area before. Um, and finally found one deer, one buck and he gave me the slip as they often do. So I stuck around where I had last seen him and made coffee on this ridgeline and just waited it out and waited to see if any other deer would show up. And after about an hour, um, which is to backtrack, I'm not naturally a patient person. So hunting has been really good at teaching me patience. Yeah. Um, I like to be moving. I like to be seeing new things. And so sitting on a ridgeline and just waiting to see what comes around that corner um, has been new to me, but it's been really valuable in a lot of different ways. But anyways, I was sitting on this ridge and lo and behold, four deer come around the corner, two does and two bucks. And you know, it's, it's opening day. So everything was still really exciting and my adrenaline is going and, um, they were across this drainage and not too far, um, within, within my area of comfort for shooting, but it was just, I just think I forgot a few things. And this podcast will be the first place that I admit this. I've told a couple friends, but, uh, nothing publicly, but I did something I've never done before. Uh, I shot and I missed. 
And it was, yeah, I know, like a very clean miss. Like yeah. I, I had him in scope, I shot, and the buck didn't even lift his head. He just kept on grazing with his wow. with his two buddy. Yeah, so um, it really shook my confidence. It happened around 1 p.m. on Thursday. And so they kept grazing and then went around this this hill and disappeared. But I kind of figured where they were going. So I gave him a couple minutes and then I ran up behind him and and I lost him. But I sat under this tree for a while and just, um, again, I'm working on my patience. So I sat and waited for a couple hours to see if they would come back around and um, just got to f- sit and think about missing and try to figure out what that meant. And it's just been kind of a crazy, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think just going into this season, you know, coming off of last season, feeling pretty confident. It's been a good lesson in like, okay, but don't get too confident, right? Mm-hmm. Like remember to remember to try to always go out into these hills with a beginner's mind and yep. remember that you're always learning. And um so I was I was actually hiking down back to my car like around 6:30 and right towards last light um I found the two bucks and they were bedded down and they were at about 80 yards and I was like, "Oh my gosh." You know, one was just standing there. It wasn't moving. The other one was still laying down. And so I knelt down and I got one of them in my scope and I actually went as far as taking my safety off and I'm, and I'm kneeling there and I didn't shoot. I just, they watched me for about a minute and a half, plenty of time for me to take a shot, but I never did. Um, I just let them, let them go. And I think it was just that confidence thing. So mm-hmm. So far, it's been a really good season and and new lessons of of uh, coming back to something that you had success at, but coming back and continuing to allow your allow yourself to to learn. That's very wise. I mean, that's uh, that's the 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 thought that all right, I may not be fully dialed in here, and I'm going to wait. I mean, I I could I, I would imagine that. I would love to think that I would have your attitude if I was in the situation like that, but I could see myself being like, oh man, I messed up last time. I got to do it right this time and almost pushing it too far. Um, again, the, the macho nonsense. And, um, that's, I mean, that's, that's really admirable, I think. And, you know, you think about that, we keep talking about learning these hard lessons and it seems like that miss is probably the best case scenario for learning, learning a lesson like that. Cause the worst case would be if you wounded the animal, uh, you know, if oh, you just I, took a took a, a weird shot and wounded. So, I mean, it's kind of like you get the benefit of that lesson without any real repercussions other than, you know, to to your your thinking about it for a while. But that's thanks for sharing that. that I, that's that's pretty cool. I don't think many, many dudes would share that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't make me feel good to say it out loud, but it's good. I mean, it's good to acknowledge that, you know, I need to be in the right mental place and you know physical just everything needs to come together for me um hunting's still pretty and i hope it never changes but hunting's pretty special thing for me you know it's certainly the way that i have meat through the year but it's much more than that and so i don't ever want to take it for granted or turn it into something that's just you know meaningless mm-hmm. uh, and i don't think i ever will but it's good that i continue to have these emotions through these through these days of hunting that's really cool. I, again, I, seriously, I really do appreciate you sharing that. And were you were you an athlete in in high school or college? I was. So I well, you know, I rode horses. So yeah. I would consider that athletics. But yes. some people 
second. Um, and then I also, so I played volleyball for about eight years and I also pole vaulted oh, wow. and dabbled in cross country. And, um, so I did all sorts of things. Yeah. Well, it seems like, I, I don't know when you were telling that story and just your, your thought process, it seemed like that type of thought process would be developed from being committed. One way it could be developed is from being committed to pretty hardcore athletics. And so, and it seems like you've got a mix of team and individual. So that's kind of stretches both sides of your brain. So do you have any more hunts coming up this fall? Um, yeah, so it's still, it's still deer season, um, for a couple weeks. And then I also have a cow elk tag, which is how I'll hopefully, um, refill my freezer. Cause I'm getting low. I found that I'm really generous with my game meat, um, to the point where I don't have that much left from last year. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> I, just, yeah. I love sharing it so much that I think I've overshared, but that's okay. If that's the worst thing, then that's really not that bad. Um, and I have, you know, I have that pup at home. So him and I have been going out and grouse hunting almost every weekend. And um, that's been a really fun new journey in hunting for me um, is hunting behind him as well and training him. Well, one more question I have kind of about your career is your writing because you're, you're such a good writer and I admire writers and I feel like writing is so hard. Were you trained in like or educated in writing or is it something you you've self-taught? How did you get so good at it? Um, well, thank you, first of all. <laughs> um, so I've always written a little bit, you know, just more on a personal level. Um, when I was over living in Thailand, um, I wrote pretty much every day that I was over there. Just I uh, there was there were no really other English speakers at the research station and we're, you know, an hour from the nearest town. So I had a lot of time to myself to explore and just be in my own head. So I wrote a lot when I was over there and, um, I've always written a little bit since, and I, I try not to make it a job. You know, I do write for my work with Idaho wildlife federation, but any personal writing I do, I try not to make it work. I try to just write when something inspires me, uh -huh. um, when I have an experience or I see something or, I have a thought go through my brain that I want to remember. Um, I try to articulate that through writing in the way that it seems in my own head at the time. And so, and it's, it's fun to just go back and read your words and sort of relive those, those things that have happened in your life. See, that's where we're different because when I go back and read stuff, I used to write a long time <laughs> ago. I'm like, Oh God, <laughs> either like it was terrible writing or I didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely that too. Yeah. <laughs> Um, who, are there any authors that you admire? Like what, when you think about writers that you admire, who, who comes to mind? You know, this is a pretty recent one, but I've really delved into his work. So do you know John McPhee? I do. He's the master. Oh my gosh. So I just finished coming into the country, which, um, was, it's a big book. I mean, it's not like a huge intimidating thing, but it's a big book just to pick up and say, I'm going to finish this. And it was incredible. I mean, I, I really admire writers who can just write and, you know, not embellish, but just write. And it still comes off almost poetic. And he's one that does that for me. I just think he's incredible in the way that he paints a scene and really brings you there and, and brings these people to life who are real people. But he brings them to life on these pages in a way that I don't think many people do. There's one that I read called Encounters with the Arch Druid. Have you read that one? No, but people have told me to read that. Yeah, yeah, you'd like that. You'd like that one. And then there's another one that just recently came out, and it's called Draft Number 4. And it's really 
it's like a um, a class in how he writes and how he structures his writing. So it's kind of like a how-to book written by John McPhee. And when you read when you read it, there are like graphs in it and charts. And he the the amount of work that guy puts into the structure of his writing, it's unbelievable how how much work goes in before he even starts typing or writing. And um, I thought it was very interesting. I mean, a lot of it is over my head as far as I'm like, I just need to work on composing a one sentence before I get into all this kind of <laughs> stuff. But but um, you might like that, too. But I, Encounters with Archdruid is is really, really good. I need to read more of his stuff. That kind of transitions well into these quick questions I have that I ask everybody at the end. Do you have time to go through those real quick? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, what are your favorite books about the American West? And it can be uh, one or two or three, however many. Yeah. So one, so at home I have a bookshelf and I, I have different sections of the bookshelf and one of them is like keepers that I read and I scribbled all through and I will keep forever. And I try not to loan them out cause I tend to lose books that I loan out. Um, but one of the ones that's been on there for a long time is called the solace of open spaces. It's by Gretel Ehrlich. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard of that. It's a smaller book and it's, I have heard of it and I don't know, I feel like maybe it's on my shelf, but I've not read it, but I've definitely, I've definitely heard of it. And, um, is, so it's pretty good. Yeah. So this was one that my grandmother gave me and, um, I've had it for a long time and I like it because she, um, she writes just about her life in Wyoming and about the people that she lives around. But, um, all the chapters are, you, you can read each chapter independently. You don't have to read it in order. Um, and it's just a really real encounter of, of what life is like in a lot of these places. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of beauty to painting something in this, this visually appealing picture, but mm-hmm. I really appreciate when writers just tell it how it is and that's how she does it. Yeah. I'll, I'll add that in my list and I'll have links to all these things on the, on the webpage so people can check it out. Um, what's your favorite book of all time? If you had to pick one. Oh, of all time. Well, you know, I really liked John McPhee's coming into the country and I just read it. So I feel like that's kind of cheating because it's pretty new in my brain, but I really liked that book a lot. Um, and that's one I'll hold on to. I, um, I really enjoyed Peter Matheson's the snow leopard. I don't know if he keeps coming up. Like it never (laughs) came up. And then I feel like in the last, maybe like six or seven episodes has come up several times. That's funny. It is a hard book to get through. At least it was for me. It's pretty dense. But it was um, just, you know, like on a on many different levels, it was a really wonderful read and it was fun to resonate with in different ways and um, really well done. And it was it's an older book, but it's still relevant today. Those are those are great. I'll have links to those. Are there any films that you like or documentaries, just anything that, that comes to mind that's been important to you? You know, I don't watch I don't have Internet or like a TV at home, so I don't watch too much TV, but. Um, growing up, I watched Never Cry Wolf probably 100 times, and I will still watch that movie until the day I die because it really, um, I think that sort of helped shape my career. And, um, you know, that really, that movie resonated with me, everything about it. So I think Never Cry Wolf was something that was a big impact in my life. So no internet at your house? No, I don't have internet at home. That is so <laughs> awesome. Was that... Have you ever had internet at home or was that a, that a conscious choice or a reaction uh, to too much internet before? Or how, how did, um, how did you decide to do that? 
I have had it in the past. Um, when I got this job and I moved into a new house, um, I was just changing all my utilities around and I just decided to try and not have it for a while. Um, and just see how I, how it went. And it's been, you know, a year and three or four months now and it's been going just fine. That's great. I think more people should do that. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly with the dog, I just honestly haven't had that much time to sit down at home and, you know, do much on the internet, but yeah, it's been a great way to just get out of the house and, and even just do new things at home too and read a lot more and spend a lot of time away from my phone and any computer. If anybody gets one lesson from this whole episode <laughs> or, or the entire podcast, all however many episodes that I think that might, <laughs> might be the best, the best lesson ever. Well, so you do all this cool stuff outdoors, hunting and just fishing and just a general adventurous life. Are there any activities you do that would be surprising to people, like kind of weird, weird or funny activities? <laughs> um, I So whenever I go out, which is often outside, uh, e- either for a day or a weekend or longer, um, I have this old ratty, it's called 265 Images, I'm looking at it in front of me, um, of Northern Rocky Mountain wildflowers. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was a field biologist, most of my job was actually, it centered around habitat. So it was mostly botany, actually. And so I try and learn a couple of new plants every single time I go out. And so I always have this with me and I'm always trying to like pick out new things. Um, it's not really weird because it, it really is all part of um, spending time out on the landscape. But um, it's been fun to just slow down and like not think about hunting or hiking or getting to a lake or getting up to a ridgeline to see the view. Um, it's been fun to just slow down and like look down at the, at the ground and learn about what's down there. That's a really good idea. I should do that with, I need to do that with trees because I've, I don't know, I can't identify trees as well as I should be able to. And I've said that because my daughters, my oldest daughter keeps asking me about trees and I feel like a, like an idiot because I don't know the answers. So I might, I might do the same thing for trees in Colorado. When you think about <laughs> everywhere you've been out West, where is your favorite location? And you don't, I mean, you don't have to name a spot if it's a secret spot, but it could be like the certain ridgeline or a certain creek or a certain town, just a place that comes to mind as being your favorite. I have a lot of like nameless places that I just love for certain reasons, like maybe what's happened there, you know, Mm -hmm. be it on a hunt or maybe I saw something that was really incredible. Um, But overall, if I had to choose a spot, you know, my time spent in the Frank church has been some of the most rewarding for me. And um, it's just a massive, massive landscape. And there, it's definitely, you know, it's traveled by people, but there are plenty of places you can get really off the beaten path back there. And so um, the, sort of like the west half of the Frank Church, that whole area is just really, really special to me. I've never been there, which is ridiculous. I need to get there. It's it's incredible. You should definitely come. Let me know. Yeah, I Let will. I need some inside <laughs> info when I go up there. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? You know, my dad... It, he's got all these one-liners that he just every now and then we used to make fun of him for it because um, he just he sounds so formal when he says these things right it's like life lessons from dad <laughs> at any given moment but uh but he always told me growing up you know he's like you can um go any direction you want but just keep momentum in your life 
And that can be like physical momentum. You can be going to new places or, or moving or, you know, going to see new towns or people, or it could be like in your personal life, you know, learning and, um, and reading and, and going back to the drawing board and sort of being a student again and just keeping up momentum in your life, however way works for you. But, um, I really took that to heart and maybe a bit too much because I, I get a little restless sometimes and I'm always sort of on the go, but, um, I try to always keep that in mind and just always keep my life, you know, changing somehow. I think that's very smart and I completely agree. And I'm kind of getting to be an old man like your dad. He's not old, but um, <laughs> getting up there. But it's, I mean, I think that the idea of momentum is huge. In my daily life, I think about that all day. And it's almost like there's going to be momentum one way or the other. It's either in a bad way or a good way. So you might as well force it to be the good way. All right. Last question. Um, if you could make a request of the people that listen to this podcast and or offer some words of wisdom or just some advice that you have gleaned over your, your years and your experience out West. Does anything come to mind? Um, you know, I've, I've had jobs with agencies, um, you know, with the forest service, I've worked in nonprofit now I've, you know, worked for small local governments and there's always a lot of, there are always a lot of issues that you can follow. Um, especially now there's just a lot going on out on the landscape, be it with wildlife or public lands or waters or, or agriculture, anything really. Um, there's just a lot of, a lot of issues that you can try and follow. And um, I, I care about a lot of these things as well. And I've tried to follow as much of it as much as I can. Um, but it just stretches you really thin, mm-hmm. and you become less of a of an effective advocate for the things that you really care about when you're trying to care about everything, right? Yes. And so what I found is I still, you know, I I still try and follow what I deeply care about as much as I can. But uh, something I try and remind myself is, you know, you don't, you don't really have to be a champion for everything, but you should champion something, you know, choose a couple things that you really care about and, and try and make a difference for those things. Um, and if everybody did that, right, there would be people that were standing up for, for everything that needed a voice. I think that's great advice. How can people connect with you online? I know you're on some social media, what's the best way for people to connect and follow follow your adventures and your writing and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram. Um, I, I'm on Facebook just because I have to do Facebook for my work as well. Yep. Um, and um, people can certainly reach out to Artemis and um, can be directed to me that way or the Idaho Wildlife Federation as well. Awesome. Well, thank you for everything you do. I love this conversation and I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much, Ed. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, If you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. 
So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie, and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye.